This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The Elon Musk versus Twitter saga continues. Billionaire Elon Musk said he's no longer interested in buying Twitter. Twitter says it's having none of that and will sue Musk to ensure that the deal goes through. So, what does all of this mean? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie. He's a lecturer in global political economy and political psychology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Welcome back to the show, Peter. During the time of our previous discussion on billionaire-owned social media sites and free speech, Elon Musk was on the verge of buying Twitter. And what you said at the time was that we're not even sure if this deal was going, is going to go through in the first place. Um, you also said that you know Elon Musk may just pull out at any time. A lot of things may happen. Now, fast forward a couple of months, and it looks like he is, in fact, looking for an out, and Twitter plans to sue him. What are your overall thoughts on where we are right now in this saga? Thank you, Dashran. Well, I think we're at a fairly normal point in a, in a business deal of this size. Um, just to kind of step back a little bit, uh, when you think of, of net worth and you think of these billionaires around the world and you say, oh, you know, uh, Carlos Slim has 30-something billion or whatever it is, and Bill Gates has 50 billion or whatever it is, and Musk, six, whatever the, the current figures are, you have to keep in mind this isn't uh, X billion dollars sitting in cash in a bank account or under a mattress. Uh, this, of course, is ownership of assets. The overwhelming majority of these figures are ownership of assets. So when it, it comes time to uh, buy another extremely expensive asset like Twitter, it's not a matter of just going into your bank account, writing a check, and then you know buying the company. Uh, I bring this up because this is also relevant to the discussion around uh, wealth taxes. Uh, I've heard some people who might not know very much about how these sorts of things work who say, they, they learn for the first time that billionaires don't have all of their, their wealth in cash. And then they say, oh, wait, wealth taxes wouldn't work because then they would have to sell their business in order to pay the, the wealth tax. They're not liquid, uh, which, of course, is a, is a bit absurd because right. you, know, you can have a wealth tax that works in many different ways. You could just transfer a, a portion of ownership of your assets uh, to the government in order to pay the wealth tax. So it's a it's a red herring. It's a non-issue that is brought up as a as a as a pseudo argument against wealth taxes. But in cases like this, the purchase of a, a multi-billion dollar company, uh, this is also quite relevant. So the reason why I said, you know, we don't know if this deal will actually go through is that these deals are extremely complex. And, you know, in, in this deal, there was uh, a certain amount of cash that Musk was uh, supposed to pay that was going to come from him selling uh, shares in Tesla. Uh, another massive loan was going to be issued by a bank using uh, more of Musk's uh, uh, assets as collateral. So all along the, 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 the stages here, you can have problems that pop up, uh, whether due to Tesla stock uh, going down in value, whether due to uh, the bank that it had initially agreed to issue the loan, uh, not being satisfied with the collateral anymore. Uh, to all sorts of other things that could pop up, like the kinds of excuses or, or reasons, whatever word you want to use, <laughs> that Musk is bringing up now with regard to Twitter 
uh, not giving him, you know, correct data on bots or, you know, uh, actual user engagement, that sort of thing. So I think we're still very much in a, uh, we'll have to wait and see sort of, of uh, uh, stage right now. Peter, for those who may not know, why does Elon Musk want to buy Twitter? I guess more than that, why would anyone want to buy Twitter? <laughs> uh, good question. Uh, well, Musk's stated reason was that he wanted to uh, introduce more free speech to the platform and uh, make it a, a more open social media uh, platform. Uh, that might be part of the reason. Another part of the reason might be that he views his Tesla stock as overvalued, that he, he thinks that the price is unjustifiably high. Uh, and instead of just selling a bunch of his stock uh, on the open market and, and potentially risking uh, a run on the stock that drives his existing uh, 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 Tesla holdings down even further, uh, basically selling his stock for the purpose of purchasing Twitter uh, might be a more effective way of, of taking some profit from Tesla, taking some profit from the kind of very, very high uh, stock price that investors have pushed it to uh, without uh, jeopardizing his his remaining holdings. Right. So there's many different reasons, you know, from from Musk's own perspective. But I think the more the broader, more important reason why people in general want to buy media companies is that not only are they potentially profitable, and of course Twitter isn't looking uh, very much like a uh, uh, at least at the moment an extremely profitable company. Its its uh, PE ratio has been. Uh, far worse than the, the, the average in the S&P 500, for instance. Uh, but of course, people could say, well, maybe in the future, it's going to improve markedly, who knows? But the, the another main reason why people buy uh, media companies is not just for the pure profit potential, but also for the political and social power that owning a, a media company gives you. There's evidence for that in the form of media companies having higher valuations than would be justified solely on the basis of their profitability. This is right. throughout uh, the economy. So because we've seen that over the years in so many different media companies versus other companies in the economy, uh, it seems clear that there's a premium that buyers are paying for media companies. And that premium is most likely in the form of uh, political and social influence. Right. And when we hone in on Twitter specifically, how important is Twitter really? Because on the one hand, you know, we have academics on Twitter, we have politicians on Twitter, we have journalists on Twitter. Um, discussions among these groups, it's extensive. People are talking about various issues on Twitter every single day. But at the same time, when I look at my extended circles, um, nobody cares. Like they are all on Instagram. Um, older people are on Facebook. I'm wondering how important really is Twitter in, in that regard? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. I'm fairly certain you can look up the, the precise numbers and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this later, but fairly certain that in the United States, fewer than 5% of the population is on Twitter. Uh, and globally, it's even lower. So I've just pulled up the numbers. You're right about a percentage of the global population on Twitter. But in America, there are about 20% of the population on Twitter. But 
It is significantly lower than YouTube, which stands at about 81%, Facebook 69%, and Instagram 40%. So your point still remains. So if you look at it by that metric, it doesn't seem terribly important. But as you just said, there are a lot of uh, journalists on Twitter, uh, politicians, public figures, etc. So it, it can have outsized influence if uh, its, its core audience are people who have outsized influence in society. Like if you, there, there have been people who've argued, and I, I find the argument somewhat persuasive that because you have uh, professional journalists on Twitter constantly as part of their, their job, uh, the broader public and critics of mainstream journalism have more uh, influence over the journalists themselves by directly confronting them with critiques, whereas in the past, journalists would essentially be kind of you know, hermetically sealed from their, their critics uh, because there wouldn't be a platform in which their critics could directly contact them. Right. Um, but that being said, I, I'm more on the, the Twitter skeptics uh, <laughs> side. I, I joined very, very, very late because I didn't like the whole uh, extremely short messages aspect of it that, that really destroys your ability to have a, a, a substantive uh, debate or conversation. Um, so I would I would go back to the the low percentage of the the U.S. and or global population that's actually on Twitter engaging how influential or powerful it really is. Right, and just to follow up on that, does does Twitter actually have the power to create meaningful change? Um, because on the one hand, we discuss about how there are a lot of um, quote-unquote influential people, politicians and, and journalists and all these kinds of um, um, people in these industries are all on Twitter, environmentalists. But at the same time, even Twitter does feel like an echo chamber, doesn't it? I'm, I'm kind of uh, in both camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I see the value in, in the argument that uh, Twitter, like most, or if not all, social media platforms create kind of ideological bubbles. Mm-hmm. You know, humans have a, a natural tendency tendency towards homophily. That is, like, you know, hanging out with people who are like us. Um, and on social media, you know, you would expect that to happen just because of our psychology. But in addition to that, because of the commercial nature of these these companies that operate these social media platforms. Uh, they'll do whatever generates the most attention because attention is the product that they sell to their customers, advertisers. So if they find that when people see uh, messages, thoughts, arguments, et cetera, that they tend to agree with, uh, if they notice that then people tend to stay on the platform longer, well, then they have uh, every reason to tweak their algorithm to ensure that people are only seeing messages that are in accord with their prior beliefs. And you have basically from the the demand side, human psychology, you have uh, pressure in the same direction. And then from the supply side, the the commercial logic of these companies, you have a pressure going in the same direction to create uh, echo chambers and bubbles. Uh, That being said, you know, I I, I would say that the uh, U.S. media system, certainly, and this might go uh, much more broadly than just the U.S., is probably least bad uh, today than it ever has been in history. Um, and that, you know, usually opens a lot of <laughs> or raises a lot of eyebrows. But you have to realize, you know, how bad it was in the, the so-called good old days when you really only had, you know, mass audiences really only had 
newspapers, uh, radio, and, and TV, none of which really had full ideological diversity. I mean, you know, in the U.S., you can just think of the, the whole Red Scare period, uh, trying to find uh, left-wing ideas in the mass media would have been darn near impossible. Right. Uh, so in that sense, I think uh, social media platforms can have a, a positive effect because even if they are uh, dominated by homophily, by the building of, of echo chambers and bubbles, uh, nonetheless, they still have, uh, on the margins at least, the opportunity for people to be introduced to different arguments. Lastly, I would just say, though, that I think Twitter is, is particularly poor uh, for that sort of, of dialogue, you know, cross ideological dialogue, because the, the messages in Twitter have to be so short. I mean, the, the, the length requirement basically limits you to, uh, you know, rejoinders, really short, witty rejoinders and, and barbs uh, directed at other people rather than uh, well thought out uh, in-depth argumentation that might have the possibility of persuading someone who disagrees with you. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beatty. He's a lecturer in global political economy and political psychology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. After the break, I ask him why Elon Musk has decided to pull out of the deal. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashan Johan and on the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beatty. He's a lecturer in global political economy and political psychology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. His area of research includes the media. And we are talking about Elon Musk versus Twitter. So Peter, when we take into consideration this, the type of discussions that are happening on, on various social media platforms, um, the echo chambers, the fake news, and so on and so forth. Where does Twitter rank in relation to the other prominent um, social media sites, let's say Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikTok, um, and, and so on and so forth? Well, to answer that question fully, I'd really want to see uh, data on you know, the extent to which there's cross-ideological uh, right. discussion and communication uh, comparing all of these these platforms, basically looking into their algorithms and seeing how they work. But since uh, their algorithms are proprietary information that uh, we as the public don't have access to, which I think is a, a major problem in itself, uh, I can't really make that comparison beyond uh, basing it on my impressions. Right. My impressions are that on Twitter, because of that, that word limit, uh, you've got very little ability to, to carry out a meaningful conversation or debate. Uh, I think probably TikTok is similar in that you've got uh, uh, kind of shortness premium for your, your communications. Um, you know, Facebook has the potential to be uh, much better because at least you can write, you know, uh, lengthy arguments or, or points or examples, et cetera and then have people reply without any sort of word limit. But of course, what, what happens there is the, the uh, algorithm is made to you know, maximize attention, uh, reduce the, the feeling of cognitive dissonance that you get when you're presented with an argument that you disagree with. So I think the potential is largely wasted. So I, I, I can't really think of a, of a social media platform that uh, does a particularly good job of facilitating the kind of of democratic deliberation or discourse that we need uh, to have democratic political systems work well. 
So how can media companies balance, strike the balance between making profits um, but also serving the people? Yeah, that's that's the most important question, I think. Um, I would answer by saying it's difficult. Right. <laughs> if you're a, a uh, for-profit company, you're going to unavoidably have a tension between uh, sort of fulfilling a, a, a needed social role of facilitating democratic debate and deliberation and maximizing your profits. Uh, like I said before, if it, if it happens that uh, people are turned off by seeing messages that they disagree with, and so they, they have a, a worse user experience on the platform, and so they spend less time on it, uh, a company is going, a for-profit company is going to be faced with a dilemma. They're going to have to decide whether they're going to uh, uh, follow the, the the social role that we need uh, from social media platforms in a democracy, or are they going to maximize profits uh, and return? And of course, in a competitive uh, capitalist market, we would expect them uh, to choose the latter option and not facilitate or create or, or, or curate the kind of social media platform that uh, democracies need, which includes being confronted with arguments that we may disagree with and in fact may make us feel bad, make us feel angry or, or disappointed or whatever the, the, the negative emotion is. So I think the, the main problem with uh, social media and it's the same problem that you see with commercialized television, commercialized newspapers, commercialized radio, is that this same tension between maximizing profits and fulfilling the, the role that a democracy needs media to play that tension is is omnipresent, and uh, I think that as for as long as we continue to treat the news media as just another area of the commercial economy uh, that should be uh, measured in its value by its stock price, uh, we're going to have this same problem, and it's going to always going it's always going to be resolved in favor of uh, maximizing profit rather than creating the the kind of democracy-appropriate media systems that we need. So how do we change that philosophy then, that that perspective, from looking at media companies as just another business um, that you know should be measured based on their profitability and, and the bottom line and how they're doing in the stock market and, and things like that, um, to view it as you know a, a forum in which there is a, a sort of bigger purpose there, uh, a bigger purpose to, to disseminate accurate information, a bigger purpose to, you know, facilitate conversation um, between people with different ideological beliefs and, and so on and so forth. How, how do we get to that point? That's another great question. Uh, you know, my, my method of trying to do that was writing a book uh, <laughs> and, you know, arguing about this uh, in academic fora. And lots of other people have, have done the same. There's a, a very wide, deep, rich literature on you know, what democratic societies need in their media systems and how commercialized media systems do not meet those requirements. Um, but you know, those are, are arguments in books and articles that do not have a, a mass audience. They're not you know, picked up and made uh, uh, points of, of contestation on television shows that have millions of viewers, et cetera. So I think the, the, the problem there is that for people whose political worldview has been shaped by the mass media in their country, um, 
almost by definition, they cannot see any problem with their news media system. Uh, they would need to know uh, ideas and arguments and perspectives that they have never been presented with in order to realize what their media system is currently lacking. Uh, so I think the, the only you know, uh, potential way out of this, this morass is for uh, people whose worldviews do not match uh, the worldview presented in uh, the mass media, the, the media system overall, uh, to unite at least on this one issue to try to get uh, media reform uh, to enforce ideological diversity in every mass outlet, whether that's done by uh, content regulations, which have been used in Europe, uh, whether that's done by uh, even nationalizing uh, large swaths of the media and putting that those those media entities under a form of democratic control, whether by uh, uh, electing a, a sort of um, uh, governor or board of governors, uh, or a, a, you know just some some way of exercising democratic control over a nationalized media system. It seems to me the only way to to even move toward that would be for people whose political worldview is currently not uh, included in their country's media system to try to uh, unite around this, this issue and try to spread uh, the idea about, or ideas about what media systems uh, need to provide and point out that media systems in their current forms are not providing that essential public service of offering an ideologically diverse public sphere in which people can debate, discuss, change their minds, uh, etc. Now let's circle back to this whole saga between Elon Musk and Twitter. Why are we at this point where we are right now? Why did Elon Musk pull out of the deal? Uh, I mean, his, his stated reasons were uh, you know, the, the data uh, that he had on the the Twitter business model was inaccurate. And when he uh, was provided more accurate data that changed his calculations or he didn't, he still hasn't received the, the kinds of data that he wants. I mean, it's hard to gauge whether these are uh, good faith uh, reasons for backing out or whether they're excuses. Uh, and the real reason is something more closely related to his current financial uh, situation after uh, Tesla stock uh, dropped somewhat. Uh, so it's it's really hard to, to to know for sure, but those are the the most plausible candidate reasons. So on the other hand, we have Twitter. Twitter has said that it's going to take legal action against Elon Musk. Why so? Well, basically, you've got the the board of directors of Twitter, and their uh, legal obligation is to uh, make the most money for Twitter shareholders as possible. So if you see them trying to enforce this deal, then that's pretty clear evidence that they think that the deal is actually a very, very good one uh, for current shareholders of, of Twitter. Um, so it's very hard to tell how these this, these various uh, uh, lawsuits and countersuits are going to, to turn out in the end. Uh, it very well may be a, there may be a, a negotiated settlement to avoid a, a long drawn out uh, court battle. Uh, but from the, the little I've seen, it, it does seem like uh, uh, Twitter's arguments are, are pretty good. In the, in the deal, they have some pretty clear uh, terms about what would happen if the, the, the deal were uh, uh, walked out on by, by Musk. Um, but, you know, you, you, it, even with clear language in a contract, you never know how 
Uh, courts may interpret that, how they may consider other factors in their interpretation of these various provisions. Uh, so again, too soon to tell, but uh, it does seem like Twitter has a fairly strong case at the moment. All right. Before we wrap this conversation up, just one more question. How do you anticipate this saga ending? Do the regular folk, you know, need to be invested in this, um, in this saga? Um, does it have actual, con- uh, you know, serious implications? Or is it just, you know, a case of rich people playing rich games and business as usual? Oh, great. You, you asked me uh, one easy question and one harder one. Uh, the easy <laughs> question is, no, there's there's very little reason for the average person to, to care at all about this unless they get some sort of pleasure from, you know, reading uh, various news stories about the twists and turns. Uh, otherwise, there's very little to, to get out of it. Um, I don't see uh, Musk owning Twitter, if he ever eventually does, uh, markedly changing it. And the reason for my belief that there would be little significant change if he bought it uh, goes right back to the to what I told you earlier about the the uh, what a commercialized media system requires. Uh, you have a, a very real uh, pressure to maximize profits, and that's going to push you in the same or similar directions, no matter who the owner of the the social media company really is. Uh, so there might be little cosmetic changes here and there. Uh, small changes to the algorithm, but I, I would doubt even if Musk ends up purchasing Twitter, uh, that there would be any major sea change in how uh, Twitter operates. Um, if I had to bet on, on the outcome, my bet would just be there would be a, a negotiated settlement. Uh, Musk would have to pay some sort of, of uh, leaving fee for leaving the deal, uh, probably not the full $1 billion if it is settled out of court, but that would be my, you know, where I put my money. Uh, but I really don't care enough about <laughs> uh, the the whole saga to to investigate it deeply enough to really actually bet money on it. Uh, it could very well be the case that that Twitter is able to uh, use the, the the language of the deal to enforce uh, uh, Musk's purchase. Um, but like I said, I think the most likely outcome is is a negotiated settlement that gets dragged out uh, for a long time, but which ends up uh, leaving Twitter in its current ownership and Musk having to pay some sort of uh, uh, fee for backing out. But again, that's just a, a guess. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Peter. Thank you, Dasham. Happy to be with you. That was Assistant Professor Peter Beatty, lecturer in global political economy and political psychology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Today I Learn, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.